2: Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. Over the course of the last year, and even into this year, the conceptual model of One Health Systems has been coming up more and more often. We just discussed this in both theory and action with Philip Tedeschi in the Institute for Human-Animal Connection at Denver University, and today with my guest Dr. Kathy Alexander, Associate Professor at Virginia Tech, College of Natural Resources and the Environment, Department of Fisheries and Wildlife Conservation, and she is also the co-founder of Caracal Biodiversity Center, a grassroots non-governmental organization in northern Botswana, which is right on the edge of Chobe National Park. So, Kathy, it's great to have you back again. You've been on our program before, and Kathy's going to help us further understand what One Health means and how this concept is being put into action by both Virginia Tech and on the ground in Botswana. Welcome, Kathy. It's wonderful to have you back.
3: Thanks so much for having me. It's always nice to chat about these interesting things.
2: It is, because these are the conversations that make the world go round, and we have an international global listenership, and this is information that everybody can listen to and access. So why don't we start by, if you could help us understand further the concept of One Health, and how easy is it to define, and then further, how how can we understand how it gets put into action on the ground?
3: Well those are a series of questions that are all very relevant right now and I think one of the things I'd like to back up and say is that um, the One Health terminology is sort of a new way of capturing something that we really talk about as a systems biology approach. So One Health is sort of this focus at the interaction between humans and animals But the way I look at it is more of this broader uh, vision of how do you encompass biological systems and all the components that actually are dynamic and and complex and predict or provide the foundation for the behavior of that system. So for example, the interaction between humans and dogs will not be the same across a series of environments because it's influenced by all the constituents, not only just the attributes and associations that that people have with other people and other animals and their views and their pets, but where they're located. For example, bearing on some of the other work you've done. So the kind of questions that I'm asking are, how can we look at a a challenge to society and make sure that we integrate the complexity of where it occurs? So One Health is typically viewed as sort of a real health outcome. I look at it as sort of the state, the resiliency of that state, asking normally health focused questions but within the context of the entire system and its resiliency to change. How, how will it stay? Where are its constituents? How do those constituents influence the outcomes? And then we have a target outcome that we're interested in either understanding or understanding and managing because we have a problem. So for example, diarrheal disease in children and all the cascading factors that influence that outcome, which should be and needs to be addressed at this One Health level.
2: So what you're saying is previously, so like ecotourism and green environmentalism, One Health is be sort of becoming a catchphrase by a lot of different people that may not necessarily be approaching it as a systems approach, as you just t- told us about. You're also coming at it from a scientific perspective Approach because you're a doctor and you're a wildlife vet and you're, um, you're the professor at Virginia Tech Natural Resources. So you come from a very different perspective than, let's say, the man I just mentioned, Philip Tedeschi, which is so uh, clinical social work. So what you've helped us understand is that this entire system requires one way, one health. It is all connected.
3: Right, and I think that. I think what's what one the concept of one health has done for us is is help identify its importance in understanding the you know at a very individual level and at a collective level that health of our communities of our systems of people will be based on the outcome of all of these interactions and that to isolate them which we have historically is not appropriate now this there's been this kind of larger concept which is certainly not limited to this view of. Of health and outcomes and and the kind of way in which One Health has been used which is the idea of systems biology which is what I'm saying is sort of an underlying framework where the One Health concept has been built from and again highlights the need for people to work across disciplines to engage these complex systems so it's not okay anymore it shouldn't be okay anymore to be a doctor focused exclusively on the outcome of some the occurrence of some health issue in a patient but that we need to consider all the other Uh, factors that can influence that for example is you know the the environment that the individual lives in the health of that environment the health of their pets the microbiome of their pets or of themselves or um, all those various factors and the subtleties of influence that culminate in some outcome that we tend to focus on and and this idea is saying no 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 you know you need to be working with veterinarians you need to be working with psychologists sociologists anthropologists plant biologists, that all of that information is relevant to the larger collective interest as well as to our individual interests that may be very focused on human health or animal health, but we need to consider the spectrum. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, absolutely, it, it, because what it's doing is, you're what we're saying here is over these past 25 years of all these technological, scientific, biological, all the sociological advances and understanding that we have now, you know, from wildlife viable populations to genetics to everything that we can do down to your iPad that we can connect and we can use this technology. But previously, we'd been sort of isolating it or compartmentalizing. And I think it was the author, Barbara, um, Barbara, The the book Zubiquity was one of the first to sort of bring this together, but never used the term One Health. She was a heart surgeon and went back to veterinarians to see where health issues showed up in vets. Because we had vets long before we had people doctors, we had animal doctors. So what you're saying is we all have to, all these components, sciences, the natural sciences, the environmental sciences... The population dynamic sciences, environment, you know, environmental habitat, it all is really an interconnected series of moving parts, and that when you do one thing, you have to look at all the cascades, as you had said it before, and I love to use that term, cascade of consequences, of t- trying to fix maybe one piece of a puzzle without looking at all the dynamics that it can affect.
3: Right. I think that's
2: very well put. Thank you. Thank you for that. So, now we've had a lot of very interesting um, professional language that you just used. So help us bring this down to a level that how this approach is working uh, in, in the work that you do both at Virginia Tech and in Botswana. So let's start with Virginia Tech.
3: Well, the work that we're doing at Virginia Tech is linked and embedded completely with the work that we're doing. In northern Botswana, and the program is directed at trying to understand significant challenges that are experienced by a global population that we can start asking at a more local level in Botswana, for example, taking the vast molecular um, and infrastructure and and bioinformatics support that's available at Virginia Tech, and marrying it with the grassroots reach and um, location of Karakol in Botswana. So one of the questions we're asking is, might sound on the surface of it, very simple. Why do children have diarrheal disease uh, to the extent they do? Why are they still dying? We've had, this has been a problem for millennia. Why are we still battling with it? Why can't we just get it resolved? We know the issues. People should just boil their water. We wouldn't have a problem, right? Even if you had bad water, you just boil your water. Well, it's just not that simple. That's why we're not resolving the problem of diarrheal disease. Diarrheal disease actually arises from, we're seeing, a very complex interaction between the state of the environment, the state of the wildlife population, the habitat features, social behavior, health-seeking belief systems. I mean, health-seeking behavior and health belief systems. What, is the, what are you doing at the household level? Where are you going for your water? When would you go to the hospital? Where are the animals across the landscape? What are their connections with the water? How are pathogens moving through that system? And how does the weather influence it? Just to highlight some key elements. The point of this is to just exemplify the complexity that actually is behind a problem. And if we really seek to identify answers that are going to be real solutions, that is what do you need to do to stop these problems? I think you need to be able to start asking more complex questions about how does everything
2: come together so that it happens. So it's really a process of learning to ask the right questions.
3: Right across scales that's the thing it's across scales and disciplines. So moving from you know sort of the idea of proteins to pandemics moving from within the host and your immune system did you have HIV what's your microbiome to what's happening at the ecosystem level how does the National Park and 40,000 elephants interact with the river and water quality and how's that water taken in and what happens if the guy who's working at the water purification plant has HIV and is sick a lot and so the water's not properly you know uh, dealt with in terms of the sanitation processes so those are just wild sort of but those are the kinds of things we're trying to look at and bring to the table so that when you try to say okay what's next what do we have to do we can say well here land use has this influence animals have this influence, people have this influence, and these are the complexities that as you try to understand these systems, these variables are going to be important here and possibly other places. So we need to understand the local context and be able to scale it up to be able to replicate it to other locations across disciplines and across focus.
2: This is just absolutely fascinating. There are so many things just firing off in my brain, but the one that it first thing it leads me to is okay there you are at virginia tech with this multidisciplinary access to so many amazing people in and sciences departments including yours and right. now you're transferring this as you said you know looking at these complexities to the local level on the ground in botswana so right. it leads me to ask how do we a translate this this um this theory, this concept, this this wordage, and transfer it, this information, to Africa. Because here we have so much access, a constant stream and flow of information, and constantly updating our knowledge base, where in Africa, as you said, you know, house to house, village to village, it it doesn't have the same access that we do. So how do you, let's just give an example here of how do you transfer this to the local level, house to house or village to village?
3: You know what what's really that's a fascinating question and I'll tell you why it's so important and so fascinating is that I would argue that understanding the more technical elements of what the United States can bring or what a university can bring or what a professor can bring is rather is is really not where the difficulty lies. The difficulty lies in understanding the information that is within the Botswana context.
2: Absolutely. This and that's that's exactly my question. You said it very well. So, how do we how do we tra- translate it and transfer it?
3: Well, and, and that's what I'm saying it's not really translating or transferring from here to there. It's to say so we have these really intricate tools, molecular Tools that are fascinating and, and able to supply so much data and information, and we've got these all these uh, skill sets that allow us to ask these really complex questions. But the the problem is that it we don't really understand necessarily what's happening in the environment we're trying to apply these things to. So I, we might be I, think, missing, I think I get it. Go ahead. So we might be missing the important questions, and and. Um, I I gave a TED talk on this actually because I I was so profoundly influenced by the fact that I don't really understand, there's so much that I don't know about. I have a huge knowledge base. I'm very well trained. I'm with a lot of different people who are incredibly bright and lots of collaborators who who cumulatively, the the knowledge set is, is actually really amazing. But the knowing part of it, knowing what is really the right question to be asking within the system you're working in. is is, comes from the non-formal education component and and figuring out how do I take all the wisdom and knowledge and skill sets that are embedded in the community I'm working with and scale it up so I can understand how to integrate all of these high-tech science techniques so that ultimately we're asking the right question across the right scales involving the right
2: issues. You said that so incredibly well, I get it now. So where I went off the path was, you know, in asking how do you translate and transfer. You don't. You you take your accumulated knowledge and you just implement it on the ground. You don't have to scale it. You don't have to start from square one in the village in Africa or the household. All you have to do is give them the answers that you found somewhat as a result of all this data and knowledge and understanding how these interconnected systems play with each other elephants at the water the cholera the disease and that they're all interplaying with each other all the time so now when you're in kasane at caracal biodiversity center and working with the villages you just start implementing
3: well see that's another i really have enjoyed the questions you're raising because i think they're really important points that that'll that we need to be more cognizant of and think about now so implementing The problem with that is that I might know now, let's say I know that there's a variety of reasons why water quality declines at a certain time, and I may know that this links with multi-drug resistance and with spikes in diarrheal disease that affect primarily children under five. And I want to design now, I want to have an answer for them. I want to say, well, what do you do? Well, you know, you, you still don't know because why don't they boil their water? Why do people make the choices they make? Why do they go to the hospital when they do? What public health messages would they be willing to hear? Are your understanding of what their options are realistic? I mean, do you really understand what they can and can't do? Um, So, for example, an example of this was when I worked in wildlife conflict. People would say, oh, well, you know, people need to spend a lot more time herding their cattle. We would stop predator conflict if that happened. Well, the problem is the woman is dealing with perhaps a number of HIV orphans. She might be a single-headed household with her as a de facto, meaning she really is alone. She's running this household. She doesn't have a, a distant husband. She's got all these orphans. She's got her own kids. She doesn't have a job. She's got a tiny little plot of agriculture. She's got maybe a couple of goats, and she just simply doesn't have the time to guard her animals. So, so, suggesting she does so is really a waste of time and you wouldn't really know that unless you started going back through all of these other factors. Where does she get her wood? Where does she get her water? Where do her children go to school? How educated are they? How educated is she? What kind of sanitation do they have? How often is she sick? You know, does she have, uh, where is she in the landscape relative to where the predators are? So, you can see that the per- just hard your cattle solution becomes a waste of time. And without knowing all of that local context, which is really the harder thing to learn, the harder thing to learn is understanding what really drives the way things happen and what are those coupling points that are so influenced by the local context that without that knowledge you wouldn't really know what you needed to target. So do I target in diarrheal disease, do I target the water system, the sanitation system, the the, the, um, the ability of people to adopt new practices or the way in which people are prepared to adopt public health messages where is the, where's the important focal point or points and that I think can only come from a really detailed and time intensive effort to understand what is actually happening there in Botswana because that's the hard part that's the hard part is being sure that from my American background and everything I know and all my science do I actually understand what this lady's day is like and what really is driving these outcomes even though i can apply the science and i know with remote sensing and environmental drivers when conflict is the highest or when diarrheal disease is the highest but do i understand what happens at all these scales that really really drive these processes
2: it's fascinating what you've really highlighted is in some way how insular we are here in Western civilization and the United States. We have this whole continent to ourselves. We have it easy compared to the woman you just described. Not that we don't have, you know, homelessness and starvation and malnutrition and deep poverty here in the U.S., but it's not talked about. On the whole, we have this wealthy um, and access to luxury. Everything's available on the local street corner. So in Africa, Botswana, Kasane specifically, and this woman's household is an entirely different world than we're familiar with. So right. having the accumulated knowledge that you and your co-founder and partner Mark Vandewaal, um have through Karakul Biodiversity Center and how, and how long you're, you're from South Africa and your understanding of those systems is really critical to bringing it back to the work you do at Virginia Tech, right?
3: Right, I think that's it's really the salient point is that it takes time to understand all of these um, interacting features and the local context, and I think it takes a lot of humbleness. Really, I mean, I think that's the thing I've learned is that it takes a lot of time, and it, it it's important to understand how much you don't know, and then if you can see that, you can reach out to the chiefs and the people and the nurse that you run into at the hospital and um, the little boy who never tells his mommy has diarrhea because little boys don't really seem to talk to their mom anymore after 13. I wouldn't know all of that if I didn't sit there in all these different households and bridge that gap of working with molecular uh, genetic tools in the laboratory, you know, real-time PCR and microbiomes and all of this exciting science and then sitting on a stool in woman's house and asking her you know do your kids have diarrhea and I realized time after time she says I don't know about my son and so I think some of these issues though importantly are replicated in our tribal areas and and sometimes in our minority health disparities where we see people impoverished communities that have really been isolated and and I've chosen to focus a lot on um, community on on children in these types of communities because ultimately children are the penultimate expression of the health of the system
2: absolutely now are you saying children here in the u.s. in virginia or are you are you saying children in botswana or are you saying all children both
3: children globally you know if you go to a dominantly white neighborhood where everybody's paying you know got big houses and lots of taxes going to infrastructure Health outcomes are largely going to be better for those children. Now, if you go to an um, inner city, city or a village or, or a tribal area where there's very little infrastructure and support or to a, a Botswana, you know, to a village in Botswana, they're all, the problems are all different at some level. And then there's common issues where disparities that arise from all sorts of sectors translate themselves into different outcomes for people. So the environmental health, what am I exposed to here? What's the water like? What's the education like? What's my health services like? What are the wildlife populations or interactions like? Where does all of this um, you know, come together? And I think those kinds of things are issues that are very diverse and different across the landscape. But ultimately, where we see deficiencies in that, we see deficiencies in child health. Now, going back to the original issue of One Health, That's been really why I think that's such an important issue, is that traditionally we've actually um, seen this to be limited to the doctor looking at the child, and I guess the story here is that it's not, that you need to even think about the lion and whether or not it killed the impala, and somewhere that's going to have a link with some of these other things that I've been talking about. And understanding those and those drivers is really critical to us really making progress in our complex landscapes and our complex problems.
2: This is incredibly fascinating. I am learning so much, but we're going to step away for a break. So stick with us because you're really going to want to hear the rest of what we're going to talk about in today's episode. So this is my guest, Dr. Kathy Alexander, in Our Wild World, and we'll be right back.
1: W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G.
2: Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
1: Families today face unique challenges. Marriage, parenting, and family forms have changed a lot in the last century. Family Matters with Dr. Virginia Collins. together in conversations that make a difference, right here on the Voice America Business Channel, every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to Wild Eyes at WildEyes.org. That's W I L D I Z E at W I L D I Z E dot ORG. Now, back to our wild world.
2: And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, and my guest, Dr. Kathy Alexander. So, if you were listening and paying attention to the first half of this program, you'll get an idea of how complex and how intricate and interconnected and uh, inclusive the concept of One Health is. So, what Kathy has helped us understand so far is that this model, this conceptual thinking of One Health is really the nucleus to solving the challenges we're facing and moving forward to. So, Kathy, help us understand and give us some examples of how this approach functions in the work that you're doing, both at Virginia Tech and in Botswana. And that's oh. a two part question, so let's start it uh, once again. Let's start where you want to start.
3: Well, I think the, the issue is, is that the, the Botswana-Virginia Tech work program is integrated, and, and that's that One Health idea as well. It's also integrating different tools and different scales to ask questions at this sort of One Health focus. So, um, my work program has been to identify problems that I could I see. And were actually raised that are problems in the environment that I've been working in in northern Botswana for the last, I don't know, 20 years I've been working in Botswana for over 20 years and other parts of Africa, but mostly Botswana. And different challenges continue to be a problem there and there never seems to be a really good answer for resolving them. And then the status quo, it just carries on and I really wanted to try to make an impact to help government, so not just do the research, but if I did the research and I found A fits to B, fits to C, what does that mean? What what would government need to do? What would the policy need? What does the household need to do? What does the doctor do in the hospital? So trying to work also across the whole length of the research effort, right? So I identify a question, I design a study, I use certain tools, I gather data, I publish a paper. Well, I didn't want it to stop there. I wanted to then go and meet with government, meet with the nurse practitioners, meet with the doctors, go and spend time in the hospital and say, this is how my work can be used by you. This is how it's valuable. So there's that also that sort of a cross scale need, I think, to incorporate, you know, from research and discovery to outreach. You know, we really should make sure that there's somebody that gets something out of it. What do you do with it? So what? Um, and that's the One Health idea because... You're actually working across the system in a manner that should allow larger issues to arise that can be acted on. So, one of the issues that is facing um, Botswana is a number of uh, diarrheal cases, and it isn't um, trivial. In 2006, more than 500 children died in a very short period, a couple of months, from a diarrheal disease, from exposure to water that had been contaminated. This, now, this, is
2: a, this is up in Kasani, which is not a very big place.
3: No, it was Francistown.
2: Okay, So it was all located in
3: Francistown and with HIV as a very important influence on this more than 500 children died. Now, I mean, if we lost 10 children in the United States in a focal break, outbreak, there would be outrage and hysteria. This is 500 children, 32,000 people got sick. So this isn't, and Botswana is a developed nation developing right? It's that status is higher because it really does have great infrastructure low corruption a government that's really interested in helping its people but this is the nature of some of these problems they they persist despite development and infrastructure growth the primary problem stays so what do you do how do you address that well I started asking across scales. so what's happening to the water what's happening in the river and if it's happening in the river, where is it happening in the river? And at what time of the year is it happening? And what's happening on the banks? Where are the elephants? Where are the baboons? What animals are in the river? And when are they in the river? And do we see an association with the quality of water going down? And yes, we do. And so then if we go up from that, how does that change over time? Is there any factors that we can start saying that help us predict what water quality will decline, again being an out, a really good indicator of if I'm drinking it, I'm not going to be well, right? I look, We look for indicators of contamination, fecal contamination, which is an expectation that then there's human pathogens or pathogens that can cause disease and dominantly diarrheal disease in humans. So then we ask this question, well, what happens about multi-drug resistance? Could we understand how multi drug resistance moves across the landscape and use that maybe to understand where the connections are? Could I ask questions? So, I don't, how are they exposed to pathogens? How are animals exposed to human pathogens? If I understood that, could I understand how the pathogens move in the water system and how a child's exposed? The neat thing is that I can ask questions like well, if animals across the landscape do different things, otters eat only things that live in the water and they live in the water, hippos leave grass in the water, impala graze but they drink from the water, mongoose live at hotels, baboons live at hotels. I can use all of these features, these life history strategies to start saying, well, let me look at them. Surely the answer is going to be across this diverse group of animals. And I can say, where are, what animals are getting exposed and how can I then link that up to a mechanistic understanding of how are they exposed? And what we found is that animals that live in the water are being exposed to antimicrobial um, resistance, and that if you live at a hotel or a lodge, baboons or um, uh, uh, baboons Baboon. or warthogs, you're also going to be exposed to high levels of multi-drug resistance. But what if, you know? Is that, is that it? You just live with humans and that's, that's the link there that you're, used, you're next to humans, you live with humans, so you have multi-drug resistance. We found no. Cattle in those systems where there's no growth promoting antibiotic delivery, they don't have antimicrobial resistance. So living with people wasn't enough. And then we were able to say, well, it must be because baboons and warthogs get in the trash and cattle tend not to do that. And maybe that's the link there. Maybe there's something we can look at there, and the water is a link. We know that just drinking it isn't enough because impalas don't have antimicrobial resistance, multidrug, but hippos do. And then we can start saying, well, what's in the water? And that's a manuscript I'm working on right now where we've looked with with my um, colleague, Dr. Sanderson, about what's happening over time in the water. We've looked at what's happening in the animals. We know what's happening in the people, and we also know what, how microbial resistance is moving in the human population or how it's expressed. What are they resistant to in the hospital? So what's happening in the water? What are the, if we isolate microbes in that water, how is antimicrobial resistance changing over time in that medium? Because that's what this result, the result of our looking at all these animals is saying water is important exposure it's an important connector between animals and humans and that's an important medium to continue to monitor and to understand how and when and where are we connected what we find is where elephants are located there's lots of soil going into the water and lots of water and water decline and when you have lots of soil you have more e coli because microbes attached to the soil and they are protected from a lot of the things we use to sterilize water so scaling that up though i ask questions about okay so we know we're getting a better idea and we're looking at it many more elements of this at the landscape level and at the environmental level and the animal level but what's happening at the household level so you get your water what do you do with it when you're in the house what do you uh, how do you um store it do you wash your hands if it's really hot is everybody water economizing and using the same water? What happens to children when they live in households where there's a lot of people being, is there certain risk factors that go along with childhood diarrheal or adult diarrheal disease? So are we working at the hospital level, asking people who come in with diarrheal disease, what have you been doing, where are you linked to? What, what are the issues that might face you that might lead to a higher incidence of diarrheal disease? But then we still have the problem of, well, maybe not everybody's going to the hospital. Why would some people go and other people not go? And who are you missing? If you're only using case data, which is what we use all over the world to estimate health problems, who's not going? And is that important? Do we need to know who's not going? And what about if if at the household level, certain people do certain things, health behaviors? My child's sick, I'm going to give them this tea. Is it a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Why would women, and I spoke to a lot of them, choose not to boil? They all knew they should boil their water. But for various reasons, uh, I don't. So why not? What what would be, what's needed to encourage people to actually boil water when they know that they could stop the problem with it, but they don't. So if you see the the illustration here is this huge spectrum, you know, down from understanding the molecular mechanism of resistance and why certain um, bacteria might be more fit in the environment and why certain animals might be more connected to human Uh, populations and how the pathogens in the landscape might be moving with water flow and rainfall and flood pulses and how living in a really dry environment might change not only the system and the behavior of animals converging at one time and dispersing at another, but how I manage my water. And so if you you can see all those levels of complexity, but all of it's important. I think if we really want to understand the problem, what would we leave out?
2: This is this is amazing. I I am just my jaw is literally dropped listening to you because I get it. I totally get it. Having lived and worked in Africa for 30 years, I totally get it. But I know a lot of our listeners are not understanding how different the systems are the environmental systems the wildlife conflict issues the water issues and you know we hear all the time water is life what you're telling us water truly is life and it can also be death and that nature is such an interconnected um, mechanism and how we have historically separated ourselves from that we kind of put humans over here and then look at all these systems and watch how they interconnect. But what you're saying in terms of One Health is we also have to put us back into the picture. That we're affecting things along with the lands, in the landscape, along with the wildlife, along with the lodges, along with the waste, along with the disease and the vectors and the transmissions. That it's all such an intricate um, puzzle and it's constantly in flux.
3: I think that's right. And I basically, you're, you're talking about these coupled systems. And that's actually, you know, we're really grateful for the support we've received from the National Science Foundation. We received a, a coupled systems grant, as well as um, the Evolution and Ecology of Infectious Disease Grant. And with both of those, trying to ask these questions. But the coupled systems program, which was what I was talking about with diarrheal disease and these interactions, it's specifically asking that question about how are these dynamics, dynamics coupled? Where are these coupling points? And if we understood it, how could we, how could we interact with it so that these feedbacks, here's this, this process goes like this and there's this effect that has that effect and these consequences. And understanding those circular types of uh, patterns of connections across the system, I think are really important in terms of making um, advances in understanding how to manage these complex couple systems. And that's a big push now. We're realizing that, that despite our interest in perhaps working in really tidy environments where science is clean and you do 10 experiments or 20 and you get really clear data and the result is obvious and, yay, I can publish my paper, that the real problems, the, some of, I mean, there are really important reasons that we need to do those sorts of experiments. But some of the harder problems and the reason why we don't address them is they're messy, they're difficult. There's too many things. Which well, how do you how do you engage all of that complexity and make sense of it? Well, that's the challenge, and that's really the one health idea: is that we need to, we must. You can't you can't avoid it because there isn't that health and that health and that health. It's one health, and everybody's a part of it, and and that's the idea.
2: Well, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say life is messy. You know, we would love to have this. A fantastical idea that it 's all perfect and everything works like you see on TV or whatever and um, or in books that it all has a happy ending, but life doesn 't do that nature is as i 've said before it 's unsentimental it 's reactionary we yeah. have an effect upon it, yeah. and that effect we have on it, it reacts to that effect and it goes on and on and keeps it 's not static it 's constantly moving and having to put all these disciplines together and then like a person like you to translate it and make it um, effective on the ground uh, is is astonishing, astounding, amazing, and um, thrilling and exciting to hear about. Um, You amaze me. You constantly amaze me. So I just want to say, Ellie, that I, I, you know, I work with a fabulous group of people that,
3: I'm sort of that, you know, jack-of-all-trades kind of person. And then I work with all these people who are um, just magic. And, and the team that I work with from Kansas State to Cal Fullerton, um, they're deeply committed people not to just having a scientific paper, but to how do we make our world a better place. And I think one of the things I was thinking about while you were talking, it just struck me is that our systems are changing, right? But they may be changing and they're so changed that by the time we realize it, there's no way to fix it. And so the idea is how do we actually see when a, a system is shifting and how do we um, bring it into some normal framework? Systems are always changing, but there becomes a point where it's, the system shifts out of a point where resiliency of that system allows it to come back to some some point where... It functions and it delivers the services it's meant to deliver and that the components are living and healthy. And that resiliency, where is it in? And where do we push that system? Where do we degrade it so we're beyond it? And then we have all this cascading health outcomes. And so that's it's really, really the, the big challenge.
2: Yeah, this this is where it really gets important. So, you know, like the Paris climate talks, I almost had to scoff because, okay, yippee, yahoo, everybody came together and said, by 2050, we'll have some solutions. And in the meantime, what are we going to do? And as you just said, we're already having such an effect, as um, Thomas Friedman called it, global weirding, that we can no longer really, um, uh, I can't think of the word at the moment, um, perceive the, the multitude of effects and consequences of the actions that we're taking every day. And that can freeze us into immobility, or it can um, propel us into taking action. And what it is, you and your colleagues, both at Virginia Tech and um, at Caracal on the ground in Botswana, and all the people and universities that you're working with, you're trying to sort of jump ahead, to think ahead, to ask the questions, to be able to maybe get one step ahead out of a long long journey to be able to address something before it happens or at least be able to anticipate this could happen and so this leads me to question how do you model this Uh, because you've talked before about models and I also want to clarify one thing you when you talk about scales um, it's also it's almost like layers of civilization, ecosystem, biodiversity—the layers that all are interconnected, multi-layered, multi-linear—and that when you t- said couples program that that you're doing, it's how these systems are coupled together, not couples as in man-woman, people-to-people. It's coupling of systems, correct? Right,
3: how the connections occur. Across a landscape that change the ripple effects, Where are those coupling points where you know X, I do X, and then there's this consequence that moves away from me into the environment and where are the and the, so there's environmental processes, there's human processes, and there are linkages between those that have feedbacks that are sometimes positive and uh, sometimes negative. And I think that uh, one of the issues and is that I was just thinking about, my perspective changed quite profoundly by working with the Botswana government. So I had a position running the Wildlife Veterinary Services for the country, and because there was so many problems and so few people, I was tasked with a lot of different things. Not only disease outbreaks, but wildlife conflict and community-based natural resource management and policy and poverty programs and how do parks become accessible and benefits and so a myriad of issues and it became apparent that they all were really connected. When people live and they're poor and they live next to a park and there's a lot of wildlife conflict, there are also usually a lot of health problems and there's a lot of um, education barriers sometimes and lack of political voice sometimes and a lack of an engaging policy environment, inability for partners and people to voice issues. And, and so I began seeing that I really needed to understand all that. Unfortunately, fortunately, in that position, I actually got a lot of opportunity to work across households and then obviously in the NGO, which I worked for for 10 years, work in the community at the household level and with government and the office of the president and all across these different scales. And it just became apparent that you, what would you leave out? Not a lot. So you really need to add things. Now, like I said, that complexity for a lot of people is not their cup of soup. But I, I, I love it because... I really think that's just life, right? That's what it is. And we really need to train new scientists. I think that's a a really big focus of tech. How do we train these new people to do what I do? You know, what would we do to make them prepared for it?
2: Right. I mean, we're of a certain era that has somewhat passed in the generations that are coming up now are 30-somethings are 20-somethings are teenagers and then are under 10s how are we going to prepare them and uh Sir Ken Robinson does a wonderful TED talk on you know How are we educating our children? And that whole education system has to change because by the time they get through the education system, they're not going to be prepared for the world that it's going to be facing them. And then also you did a fabulous TED Talk explaining a lot of this, so I would really like our audiences to click on the link on the host page there to Kathy Alexander's TED Talk because, as you can tell, she's an amazing, fascinating uh woman and I, I honestly don't know where she gets all her energy from. So uh, let's bring this a little bit to the Caracol Biodiversity Center. We've got like a few minutes left here. So the, the Caracol is an astonishing little place right on the border of Choby National Park. And it sounds like a, a a pretty simple little title and I'm gonna have you spell out um, language out what Caracol uh stands for. But the amount of talent, skills, people, science that is going on at this little, tiny, amazing place called Caracol.
3: Well, thank you. And I
2: appreciate all your kind words.
3: Um, you know, K- Caracol stands for, and I think epitomizes really, we started it in 2000, my husband and I, and the reason we started, I should back up there, is we were in government and there was just so many issues and so many problems and you're always putting out fire. So how can you be proactive? How could you be in front of... Instead of, in, you know, in behind the eight ball, how do you get in front of the eight ball? So we decided to set up the NGO. Now, the NGO's title is stands for Communities, Animals, wait, sorry, Center for <laughs> Communities, Animals, and Land Use. So, and and it, and I can actually, we'll put it up on the website so everybody can appreciate the nuances of the title because it's quite long. But the reason why we wanted to encapsulate the two big issues were communities animals and land use. So there was no priority. There was no idea that we are a community organization focused on communities or that we're an animal conservation organization or we're looking at development and land, but rather that we're trying to understand what everybody needs to persist and to live healthy and to have an expectation of happiness. How do we keep our populations of animals happy and, and healthy and vibrant and viable? How do we keep communities healthy? How do we develop landscapes and land use patterns that will be sustainable in the long term? So that's kind of the idea there. And I think what we've done is um, trying to go back right to grassroots. A lot of the issues that I raise as a scientist, I have discussed with the chiefs. And I ask them, you know, what their thoughts are. I'm always humbled about how much they know, how much they remind me that my approach is probably inadequate and my thinking limited. And and I think that's one of the things that I'm really hoping to do is bring some of that back here to our students to to recognize that, that, you know, getting a college degree doesn't make you really that clever. That being clever is being able to reach out to the people who know, which, again, was that TED Talk. And let me give you an example of, of sort of an overview of, of a process that started at Caracol but then came with me here to Tech and culminated in an important, I think, publication and, and policy um, uh, Issue that we hope to see advanced, and we probably will. I wanted to. I knew that there was these bimodal diarrheal disease outbreaks, and everybody was sick. I was sick, but nobody really understood it, and it was just the way of life. Everybody gets sick. So I've told you about the program that we're looking at. But one of the things I wanted to understand is: is do people have pit latrines, and how does that actually influence these diarrheal disease outbreaks? And what we came to is that, going all the way from understanding where that fits in. To understanding that people were putting bunch, bunch of water down their pit latrines just to keep the place clean, we were able to see that that effect, that thing we never knew about, translated into potential contamination of surface water. And so there's that sort of continuum where we bring what we do back to an environmental impact which can impact humans. And therefore, I think a perfect example of why we need one health and why Carcle is so focused on working across scales trying to integrate all of these issues and working with great technical partners like Virginia Tech and the rest of the folks that are helping us.
2: It's, it's astonishing. So we've got just a couple minutes left here, so I do want to reiterate to our listeners to go through the guest tab on the host page where you're listening this show and uh, look up Kathy Alexander and Mark Vanderwall because previously they've, they've done three shows, so it's always wonderful to talk with Kathy and Mark, and hopefully we'll get to c- catch up with Mark soon, but... Um, Listen to those shows because she gives you the background of a lot of what Caracal has been doing over the past several years, and today we hear just how far ahead of the curve the Caracal Biodiversity Center was when it began. And listening to Kathy today tells us she's so far ahead of the times, which is what the Diversity Center has been able to bring to the community that she works in on the ground in Botswana. And please do listen to the TED Talk. And I'll also supply links or Google Dr. Kathy Alexander, Virginia Tech, or Caracal Biodiversity Center, and the website, which is Kathy
3: www.characol.info.
2: Okay, check that out because it's amazing what they do there. Not only everything she's talked about, but they manage to rescue orphans and release them back into the wild. So Kathy and her husband Mark are amazing people. The Caracol Biodiversity Center is an organization and an NGO way ahead of its time. And Kathy and Virginia Tech and all the partners she works with are incredible people. And unfortunately, we're out of time today. Kathy, do you have any last little takeaway you would love for our listeners to think about and move forward with?
3: Well, well I think one of the things, and I appreciate all of your kind words, but I think as I watch and move through all of these systems, I'm impressed with how little I know. And um, I think that that's the humbleness we all need to take, is that we're confronted with big problems, we know very little about it, and it's okay to to just widen your gaze, reach out, think out the box, take chances, do things differently, and think about things in this holistic place where you bring in all these different non-formal and formal types of knowledge sets to answer today's complex problems.
2: And there is so much information out there, and that's one thing we are so privileged in this country to have is access to this information. So look it up, people. Google One Health. Start broadening your mind, and don't be afraid to say, I don't know, and then go about learning it. So that's what's happening today. Thank you for listening. My guest, Dr. Kathy Alexander, and this is Our Wild World.